and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Death Sentence. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Julio Oliveira. Julio, uh, why are we doing this movie again? I'm very excited, but I, you know, <laughs> we've got a lot of lovely patrons. You and I come up with some story arcs for us to do that sometimes I get confused as to where we're at and why we're talking about our subject at hand. Well, no, no story arc yet. The, the the big, the the next big contrarians event is right around the corner. But first, this is just a plain old patron demand uh, from Paul. Maybe looking to uh, just redeem himself, get back on our good side after some pretty uh, controversial picks, like Drop Dead Fred, Whew. and yes. <laughs> So I, I think that he's he was trying to. Uh, this is a peace offering. You know, it feels like every few episodes we we just can't stop bringing up how much we dislike the uh, drop dead Fred, <laughs> and we've almost forgotten how much we liked Baccarat, which is another pick of his from mm-hmm. a long time ago. And so, um, yes, Paul, we like Baccarat. We didn't like drop dead Fred, and now we'll find out how, how we do with that sentence. But it is certainly uh, at least. In concept, I think it stepped in the right direction because we like Kevin Bacon, we like thrillers, and uh, we like John Goodman. I would like Garrett Headland, like Matt O'Leary, as has been proven on our Patreon page. We're a big uh, fan of the underutilized resource that is Matt O'Leary. You got um, Kelly Preston, rest her soul, who was a good actress. Aisha Taylor was a good actress. I mean, this movie. I had vague memories of it from its initial release, which we'll talk about more in uh, our second part of the episode. But, I mean, James Wan? Have we done a James Wan movie on The Contrarians so far? I don't think so. I think we've talked to death about the Saw franchise, (laughs) but not directly. We just always, in a very dismissive way. (laughs) Uh, I beg your pardon. We give Tobin Bell his... Props in the Goodfellas episode. So yes, yeah, no. I mean, Tobin Bell. It's he escapes most of. And you know what? Not to throw you under the bus, but really, most of the the saw complaints come from you because I've only seen one of the movies. <laughs> and I was like, that's fine. No, yeah, you, you're like they destroy the horror genre. Okay, well, hold on. I, I don't go that. <laughs> there's a lot of other moving parts, but I think that's fair because if I'm not mistaken, isn't Paul like? 
a massive proponent for the Mm -hmm. Saw franchise. So, or at least the first one I know he's a big fan of. So, uh, I think that's all very fitting. Um, and uh, you know, James Wan is, we could have easily done insidious or fast. Uh, he did one of the fast of the furious, right? I think the seventh one yeah. and and Aquaman. So I'm glad we did more of like, um, a deep cut here. And I feel this is fitting of what we do. And this is unplugged. Yeah. The hidden track on the unplugged album. So this was his adaptation. You know, we're making the reference to music there. This is his cover of the Death Sentence novel from 1975, written by Brian Garfield as a sequel to Death Wish, which we've, of course, talked about. Uh, we joked about the Death Wish franchise starring uh, Charles Bronson and aging Charles Bronson in Death Wish 9. And Death Wish, of <laughs> course, would be adapted once again by known scumbag Eli Roth in 20, <laughs> 2018. That's one that I remember being torn on, but I still have no interest in ever watching because, you know, it was written by Joe Carnahan, who smoke and aces and a team. I'm a, a big trumpeter mm-hmm. of, but not even uh, he and Vincent D'Onofrio and Elizabeth Shue could uh, pull it together for me. So somewhere in between that, we have Death Sentence here starring Kevin Bacon We've talked about Kevin Bacon before, but this is the first Kevin Bacon vehicle we've covered, correct? I'm thinking. Recently on Patreon, you you talked about X-Men First Class, but that might be the closest we've gotten to a Bacon discussion. 2007? Summer of 2007? Any memories, Julio? Film-wise, excuse me. God, is that There Will Be Blood? Yes, There Will Be Blood. Um, no Country Old Men was more of the fault, you know. <laughs> It wasn't Juno. <laughs> there was a movie that came out on the same day that we've talked about in the past. Want to take any guesses? I will say this, that it a release date of August 31st was not fitting for the the name and subject of this film. Uh, probably a Christmas movie. I don't know. It's all like a, a, a big, you know, all the dates get. Yeah, this is a big, you know, by brain and its fixation on data <laughs> that's a dividing point between us but it was uh, rob zombies halloween was released on august 31st of 2007 of you know that's i should have known because i saw that in the theater and i should have just remembered the if i remember correctly what was still like the stronghold from the summer was pirates of the caribbean at world's end I'm, i think that was summer of 2007 i don't know but anyway, Kevin Bacon decided that it's time to get violent, baby, and it's time to seek retribution, and it's time to make a box office bomb. So he partnered, <laughs> partnered up with James. Uh, bomb is intense, you know, a budget of twenty million dollars, box office return of seventeen. But I think for the purposes of what we're discussing here today, it was not well received critically at all. Currently standing at a twenty percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I think with over a hundred reviews, so pretty good pool they pulled from there. I know when we've talked about Kevin Bacon, it just came to me, and that is not a, because of a movie, but just because of the the strategy that Kevin Bacon, the Kevin Bacon adopted regarding his career post. Uh, I want to say Footloose, maybe because he he kind of like hit it big. He was the lead in several projects, and then he was having trouble finding good parts, and so he changed tactics and started taking supporting roles. 
because he realized that the, the really good stuff was in supporting roles because he was he was losing out on the interesting lead parts, but it was a lot easier to land supporting roles and that he kind of rebuilt his career and you know became not to sound mean you know became relevant again mm-hmm. and you know by building up his resume with good supporting roles in 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 high profile movies and then he was like all right i'm ready for a bomb <laughs> do i need to shave my head okay we'll do it halfway for a guy that's existed to seem dismissive of his early credit uh, to his acting career in uh, Friday the 13th. It's got to be humbling to shave your head to on make screen. make sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to get shot in the neck while Garrett Hedlund stares across the screen at you and says, look at you. To uh, not be able to save your family. No shit. Twice. But, I, you know, I think he was paying homage here because, you know, of course, in Friday the 13th, he takes a spear through the neck or the throat rather and <laughs> Here he ends grabbing his neck. So maybe this was a, a wink and a nod for Mr. Bacon to Sean Cunningham and uh, the other campers at Camp Crystal Lake, and also, of course, Betsy Palmer of saying, "Hey, so you think you think Kevin Bacon went up to James Wan and he's like, hey, what if we we do one for the fans where <laughs> I get injured in the neck? You get it? You get it? Or do you think there was the other way around?" Uh, Bacon was in the makeup trailer, and James Wan came up to him and was like, "I have an idea." <laughs> Listen, don't say no first. Just think about it. And, and then he pitched him. Day, and Bacon was like, fuck it. He's like, I was watching Showtime in the hotel room last night. And Friday the 13th is on. And motherfucker, you never told me you were in that movie. <laughs> Smoking is bad. Speeding is bad. Deaths in the family are bad. Divorce is bad. It's just kind of nice to see that all that junk is still true. Yeah. All right, Julio. So I want to get into this, but before we do, of course, we have to explain what it is we do here on The Contrarians. Here on The Contrarians, our battle cry, uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's We grab our flag and march up the hill, and that's what we, we scream. That's who we fight, is the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times accompanied with that pretty IP, that trademark logo that signifies it is certified fresh. And what we'll do is cut that movie down to size, talk about maybe some of the overrated aspects, poor costume design, weak plot, plot holes, bad acting, poor score. You know, I'm constantly on the hunt and on the prowl to talk shit about bad CGI or even just over-reliance on CGI. So those type of things, Um, just in an effort to say, maybe the critics that compiled this review weren't telling the whole story. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, uh, usually about 30% and below. So today's death sentence at 20% surely uh, fits the mold. And as you could guess, we talk about the film's positive merit, build it up, talk about good acting. Uh, good action sequences is one that we're going to be talking about today with this one. Uh, you know, maybe just a, a movie that fell between the cracks for whatever reason is fairly underrated. Good score, uh, good soundtrack. What what it takes to say maybe that low score isn't indicative of the enjoyment you'll get from this movie. Uh, all in an attempt to, you know, obviously art is subjective and you can be performative about it. You can be as over the moon about something or as downright cynical about something uh, that you want to be if you set your mind truly to it. And also from the get go, the whole reason this started is Julio and I used to always talk about uh, the Rotten Tomatoes system is a bit flawed and that a lot of people don't really entirely know what that percentage entails and what it means and what what you should take away as the the um, the reader or the, I guess the 
the person who's reaching out for resource or recommendations. So we're here to kind of help tell that story a little bit better and do what we can to help the movie going audience. But that all compiles the first half of our podcast, part one of each episode, what we refer to as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're tackling, they just need to stick around for part two, the second half. That's correct. Part two, the aptly titled Real Talk, that is where we tell you how we really feel about the movie. We forget about the Rotten Tomato score. We don't look at the tomato meter anymore. We just focus on how we experience the movie. Um, sometimes we don't know how the other one feels. I, I knew that you had some familiarity with this movie, Alex, because you kind of jumped at the chance to do it <laughs> when, when it came up from Paul, when Paul brought it up. And, uh, I'd, I'll tell you about it in real talk, but I at first I thought that maybe I had seen it or maybe seen part of it. Then as I was watching it uh, tonight, I was like, no, I haven't seen it. I'm thinking of a different movie. And then towards the end, he started shaving his head. I'm like, no, I have seen this. I was just really <laughs> drunk. So we'll go over it. And I'll tell you how I think I felt back then and how I feel today, having watched it fully awake. <laughs> In Real Talk, that's where you get to find out that. And then we give it a score, a real score, not a run tomato score that's misleading. We tell you exactly what we think this movie's worth it. Because what is art for if not to uh, be assigned arbitrary numbers <laughs> in <laughs> qualifications? But before we do any of that, we have to consider this corner. This movie's rotten. That means that we're going to say really nice things about it. 20% of Rotten Tomatoes. So not wholly crapped upon we've done zero percenters on here man so 20 percent whatever those what's a zero percenter we did i don't even know now but uh, uh, left behind which is part of the contrarian's physical collection it's true i don't think that movie particularly cared but you know some of those would beg for a 20 percenter so <laughs> but for the most part critics didn't give a shit they didn't care about kevin bacon and his family here they just said get this off my screen what uh what were, what were their problems what were they saying uh, I have four rotten quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, we're going to start with Richard Probes from the independentcritic.com, who says, In all honesty, I didn't expect much from the film, and I didn't get much. So Richard already went in expecting to not like it. And I think that that's on him. You know, if it's like you when you watch superhero movies, mm -hmm. you already have this mindset that you're not going to have a good time. And then, unsurprisingly, you don't have a good time. Richard was probably a, not a Death Wish fan. And I was like, this is just the same thing, but with Kevin Bacon. Who cares? Joshua Tyler from Cinema Blend says, The only thing worse than the movie's cliche vengeance script is the clunky way James Wan directs it. Alex, would you say that James Wan's direction is clunky in this movie? James Wan is a director you, who absolutely has like a feel. Yes. How do you feel about Aquaman, Joshua Tyler? Next, Mike Russell from The Oregonian says, an ugly, stupid, and meaningless thriller. <laughs> ugly, I understand, but that's ugly with a purpose. This is not supposed to be pretty <laughs> to look at. A lot of horrible things happen. <laughs> and meaningless, I mean, in the sense that maybe it... it posits that the act of defending your family is meaningless because you will lose no matter what maybe but that doesn't mean that the movie itself is meaningless uh, i'm gonna close with josh larson from sun publications chicago illinois and he says ultimately undone by a ridiculous final half hour in which bacon turns into the terminator yes it's awesome 
it's the best part of the movie. It's a good movie with an an even better final half hour. That that's what you're building to. That's the whole point of watching one of these movies. You want to see Kevin Bacon kicking ass. Yeah, and that's also like the Death Wish movies are just, you know, movies of this era. This is like the you could make an argument. This is like a grindhouse type movie also. So if that's not what you're into, then yeah, it ain't going to work. But I, I disagree. Sorry to all four of you, but we're about to build the opposite argument. We're going to tell you everything that's worthwhile in that sentence. Alex, take us into Contrarian's Corner. Mr. Hume, I've got one eyewitness, you. That's nice. But do you know how many cases with one witness I don't even bother to try for a deal on? The machete magically disappeared. The only blood we could find on that weasel was his own from when the car clipped him. And you picked the only gas station in America without a working surveillance camera. Let's see where to begin here. Nick Hume, a businessman living in Columbia, South Carolina, goes to watch his son Brennan's hockey game. As they're driving home, they stop at a gas station in a bad part of town. During an apparent robbery of the gas station, Joe Darling, Darling, Darley, excuse me, Darling. <laughs> Darla or Dimple. Darlings. Or the, is that the, the family from 101 Dalmatians? Uh, yeah. I'm thinking no, I'd... Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Wendy Thank Darling. You. Thank you. During an apparent robbery of the gas station, Joe Darley, a new gang member, slices Brennan's throat with a machete. Nick ambushes the thugs, pulls Joe's mask off, and sees his face. Joe escapes, only hit by a car. Nick rushes Brennan to the hospital, but the boy dies. Lucas, Nick's younger brother, and less charismatic son suffers survivor's guilt. So this is, you know, the movie begins and we get this portrait of, you know, the perfect uh, suburban family here. Kevin Bacon, his two sons, and then his wife, Helen, played by the late Kelly Preston. Mrs. Travolta. Yeah, kind of, I guess the only part of the movie that kind of made me sad, uh, her untimely death. And she was really good. You know, she was a good actress and like stuff like this obviously isn't challenging isn't a word I would use to describe this, but she just was really good in this role and seemed to kind of immerse herself in it. And so that was, it was kind of a trick, you know, when you have these, these really small characters only have like a a couple scenes and just a little, a few lines of dialogue, you need an actress that can make it count. So that's, Mm -hmm. That's how you pull it off. You you cast somebody like Kelly Preston. You're like, all right, well, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Let's move on to to set up the squibs. I, I like her a lot too. It's, it's uh, it works, you know. And I I know it sounds silly, but just the idea that you have to get a group of actors with the right chemistry to portray a happy family in this opening. You know, it's like okay, you got you got Kevin Bacon, but now you have to surround him by you know uh, a wife and two kids that actually look like they're having a good time around him. And, and mm-hmm. I think that it, it works. You know, you see all these home videos and I, I feel like you are a lot more familiar with the, the revenge genre than I am, Alex. But mm-hmm. I know enough to know that I was watching a family that was going to be destroyed in the first act. I was like, that's, that's what these movies are, right? You have the main guy, he loses everything and then he spends the rest of the movie seeking revenge. And uh, I was dreading it. It's not a pleasant experience, but that's what the movie wants you to to feel. And that's so what I was watching. I was like, man, that sucks. I'm going to, at some point in this movie, I'm going to watch Kelly Preston die and the two kids either get murdered or or at least be traumatized. I, I was not expecting the level of violence <laughs> that we got, but I knew it was going to be bad anyway. He did his job. James Wan, the, the casting director, everybody, you know, they, they gave us a happy family that, uh, that you're worried about. Uh, now, my question is, what godforsaken city are they living in 
What is this? New York in the seventies? South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. Is is this an accurate depiction of South Carolina? Yeah, man. Once you cross the Mason Dixon line, things are kind of there's no guarantees. You get to the South. Like I know you live in, or we live in the People's Republic of Austin, but you could still find places in Texas that are uh, dangerous like this with Garrett Headlands running around. Um, this is like Mad Max level of just lawlessness. It's like Gotham. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, what the fuck does Kevin Bacon do? Is he like an insurance adjuster? I couldn't figure no, out what he's his a, job. He's a risk assessment uh, person. Oh, he's Ruben from Along Came Polly. Yes, Ru- that is Pfeffer. exactly what my note says. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's such a good... I'm actually surprised we'll see more of these guys in movies because it's such a uh, an interesting profession to give your, your protagonist because it's somebody who is constantly assessing... <laughs> The the odds and the, the you know is it too risky? It's it's fascinating that given his career, uh, the Kevin Bacon character here constantly puts himself at risk. <laughs> it's almost like he's going against everything he does professionally, which kind of makes sense because you know he's disassociating. He's learned nothing. <laughs> no, he's like you know do as I say, not as I do. There you go. <sighs> Come on, don't make me file with the state. We file with the state so that one day if somebody looks back at this guy's death, he will see that we did our job. Joe, the one who kills his son in the gas station. We, we learned it's not a robbery. It was a gang initiation. But Joe uh, is played by Matt O'Leary, who are patrons present and future. That's I'm talking to you right now, who's not one of our patrons. You can sign up and go listen to us discuss the 2011 film Natural Selection, which we were both quite complimentary of his leading role as Raymond in that. Um, he's, but, he's a lot more lovable in that movie. Well, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right. according to, uh, according to Rachel Harris, he is. That's fair, but is yeah identified and is going to be taken to trial. And he looks just like a scumbag. I appreciated how over the top the like, um, wardrobing and tattoos and shit were on the bad guys in this. And we'll get to the, the head bad guy in just a moment. But the Joe here is going to go on trial and the district attorney is trying to make, you know, a deal with Kevin Bacon to get this uh, gangster, this thug off the street. And he tells him, you know, it'll only be like three to five years since there's only one witness and it's going to be a light sentence and it wouldn't be enough to really take the case to trial and doing his best to just, sell to Kevin Bacon how broken the system is. I was about to say, my note said the legal system in the U.S. is ass. And, you know, <laughs> that's not to say the legal system all over the world elsewhere is necessarily as uh, ideal as it could be, but uh, obviously this is a very dramatic portrayal, but sadly, I'm sure there's real conversations like this all the time. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I stopped short of just asking you, who is the real scumbag here? Matt O'Leary or this dude, this, <laughs> this DA that's just almost trying to discourage Kevin Bacon from seeking justice and telling him, look, let's, how about we all just take it easy? <laughs> just, let's, let's just do what we can so we can be done before lunch. Let's relax. All right. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Don't you have another kid? Okay. <laughs> See, it's not that bad. All right. <laughs> God gave you two. Yeah, during the morning of the the son Brennan dying, then we get some like Muzak, Sarah McLaughlin, and uh, the it's raining at the funeral. So just tremendous early two thousands tropes were still very much alive here. Um, oh, and dude, I did, the, the best part was when uh, 
when the son got killed, as, as his throat gets slashed, he drops his slushy in slow motion. Yes. Now that I mean, you don't see that in the in the twenty twenties. The slushy for some reason was called a uh, polar blow. I was like, well, that's <laughs> that's a, a unique name. I see. Didn't want to be associated with this movie. Did you have like Slurpees? Or was there like a frozen drink like that you remember getting as a kid that you really enjoyed? Uh, not the slushy. Like I, I discovered slushies as a concept when I moved to the states. Uh, what we had in Peru was uh, uh, what you call the ones that are like ice with syrup, like a snow cone. Snow cones, yeah, snow that's cone. what we have in Peru. Yeah, the gas station, not gas station, but the convenience store closest to my house when I was a kid. Kid, uh, they were called slush puppies. They were like. You know, like Sonic Ice, but even finer than that, they would put and then give you a few hits of syrup. And so uh, I can relate, though. I mean, in high school, there was a slushy machine that had like strawberry banana. I remember always getting down on those. And then uh, I lived by 7-Eleven in college and, you know, Slurpees. My friend JP worked there, so we'd get big uh, Coke Slurpees and put Jack Daniels in it. So I'm trying to say here, if I'm ever <laughs> you like... You risk your life <laughs> for slushies, that's what you're saying? Not saying that, but I am saying if I'm ever like in a situation like this, I will be probably with slushy in hand. So <laughs> it was kind of like are. seeing how I could potentially die here. I was like, all right, well, this is how it's going to go. Um, <laughs> you but, wouldn't drop it, though. You no, go down with the slushy still <laughs> fuck you. firmly yeah. grasped. <laughs> He ate his throat slit, right? Yeah. I'd put like the, the cup to it, the cold. You're like, all right. <laughs> or the very realistic uh, approach of Tom Hardy and um, Lawless, where he just grabs the wound and closes it and walks to the hospital. <laughs> Kevin Bacon realizes he has, you know, the law is not going to work, so he's going to have to take the law into his own hands. My note just says Bacon is going to TCB, and he recants his <laughs> statement in court. So they let this dude out. They let him go. So he begins following him around, sees, you know, the crew he runs with. We see um, Garrett Skin Headland appear. And <laughs> <laughs> he's the, I was proud of that, the ringleader. He plays Billy Darley. And we learned he is Joe's brother. What's your history with Garrett Headland? You, when you were recounting the cast, you sounded pretty enthusiastic about him. And I, I like him as an actor, but uh, tonight, much like with, I think every Garrett Hedlund movie I've ever seen, I couldn't recognize him. Like I didn't. Is he a chameleon, or is it just that he has that face that is forgettable? His projects are unique in that he'll be in like big movies and then kind of um, not like indie smashes, but it's just a unique filmography when you look at it. So he'll do something like fucking country Four strong brothers. with Gwyneth Paltrow and then the pan movie that came out in 2015, the fantasy one mm-hmm. um, with Hugh Jackman and still kind of forever bitter. Adele Exarchopoulos was supposed to play Tinkerbell in that, but that fell through. Uh, <laughs> for me, Garrett Headland, you got Friday Night Lights. You got Four Brothers, which you called out, which he's excellent in. Um, Tron, remember he was, uh, I thought you were going to say Troy, you know, I was, I was going to cheer you on, uh, but he is a skinhead in this and he's got nasty ass tattoos. And like I said, I appreciated just the, um, 
the severity or like the to degree of which the the intensity of these tattoos because they're like black and you know they're the the tribal tattoos that wrap up the neck or some guys have them on their face and head and uh, one guy's wearing an affliction shirt so you can just remember it was the second half of the two thousands and this movie Julio this is a good time as any because I remember when he finds them they're outside and they have their big cars and you know they're going to their fucking rundown apartments where they live this movie during the day is so bright and during the night sequences is so dark clearly not through the act of like poor filmmaking but a director's vision and i think that adds so much to the presentation of this it's a a tale of the two carolinas (laughs) the bright carolina the dark carolina (laughs) south carolina after dark you don't want to mess with that this is uh, the role that Garrett Hedlund took when James Franco was on vacation. That was my <laughs> my feeling after, and maybe it's because you know we've seen a couple of Franco turns that were along the same lines. You know, like I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Kin and uh, uh, Homefront. Yep, but that just kind of like that that kind of nasty bad guy facial hair and. Uh, White trash. I could see, yeah, I could see Franco taking this role, and I'm glad that they didn't go that way. They went with the the indie version of James Franco. They went with Garrett Hedlund, and I'm like, yeah, he can do it. He can, he can, uh, he can carry a movie as a bad guy. I know that he's a skinhead, but I also kind of applaud the inclusiveness of his gang because there's a black guy there. Yeah, makes it almost all the way to the end. A familiar dude. I couldn't put my finger on what I know him from, but that actor. How awkward it is to be that guy in that gang? Oh, that's it. He's um, uh, the dreadlocked vampire in um, Twilight. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's already been part of Contrarian's history. He is. His eyes are very memorable. All right. So that was Twilight was after the ne- this, right? The next year. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> up until this point, man, what a hell of a run. Um, Eddie um, Gaigi? Gaichi? is the gentleman's name and his run up until this point was crank gone baby gone the fifth patient death sentence and then twilight and then he was like i'm done i'm retiring uh (laughs) he was also that's okay that's the other thing i recognize him from he was uh first class he's the guy that fassbender and mcavoy get in the the taxi and they're like drive us to washington dc and he's like that's seven hours and he's like that'll give us time to talk and then uh, he's that dude (laughs) he had a good uh run in the 2000s but to your point, yes, it would be it's be strange to be a minority in that group because those white dudes look like they definitely have very problematic views. The tattoos tell a story and it's it's racist. When one of us gets killed, we don't make the paper. But the son of a senior VP of Starfish Capital. Whoa, wait. All right. So, so I'm glad then that we're on the same page about Garrett Hedlund and his band of hooligans. I wouldn't say that because you know there's some some villains that you love to hate. In this case, I mean, did you find them sympathetic at all? Not in the not about their views, you know, but just the fact that they're they're kind of a family, and and Kevin Bacon comes in and, and starts shit because you know what, one of the the themes, like one of the running conflicts in this movie, the questions posed is like, is Kevin Bacon in the right for seeking retribution? I think did so, he make yes. things worse. Uh, he definitely made things worse. And it starts pretty much here on this night because he uh, he follows him back to and finds out where Joe's staying, goes back there, confronts him, and ends up killing him. Uh, you know, 
it could be argued that he didn't mean to, but he did regardless. And <laughs> he just happened to have a knife and he was terrified by it. Yeah. This is not Kevin Bacon action star. It's Kevin Bacon, like a dad that is angry, but he's not sure how he's going to uh, take care of business here. You know, it's not like a, this this expertly choreographed fight scene between him and uh, Matt O'Leary. They're just kind of tussling <laughs> on the ground. And then before you know it, one of them has a, a knife sticking out of their stomach. So that's cool. That felt like a real thing. This is just like a normal guy. And now he, he killed someone, you know, because most movies just turn him into an action hero overnight. And he goes home and he's obviously shaken up by it. He's he's crying in the shower and, you know, he's really having a hard time by about it. In the interim, before news breaks about Joe's death, we see Billy visit a like a wreckage yard a junkyard and walks in and is uh, greeted by John Goodman in a preview of Lewin Davis several years down the road <laughs> where John Goodman <laughs> plays Roland Turner and Garrett Hedlund is his driver, Johnny five. And that wow. is, that is what I think of when I think of Garrett Hedlund, his role in that. I always just, cause you know, he has like fucking five lines, but his presence yep. is so strong. That's and, amazing. I can't believe I did make that connection. Incredible moments. We, you know, we could go back, see if I can do math here. Six years before that movie. And Bones is John Goodman. And what a strange part for John Goodman to take. And I mean that in the best way possible. He's just this vagrant or just kind of this weird recluse is the word I was searching for there who sells guns and gives people odd jobs and he wears these glasses and he's obviously really like dirty and um, just kind of like you know a character you would meet in a video game type of thing not the type of yep. thing you think of when you think of like America's dad John Goodman that type of thing so a, a really fun thing to see him do this proves that you can get Goodman to that level you can, you can make him bad man instead of good man but you need a director that can pull that performance out of him. Todd Phillips, not so much. Because I, what I thought of was him as a bad guy in Hangover 3, where he's supposed to be the scary mobster and, and you know the reason why the adventure happens. And there, I didn't really buy it. And you see that performance and you're maybe thinking, yeah, I don't think that you should cast John Goodman as a bad guy in anything. He's, he's lovable. He's Roseanne's husband. But then you he's see Fred Flintstone. Here. He's Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Uh, but then you see him here and yeah he's nasty and foul mouth and scary and he gets a fraction of the runtime of the screen time that he gets in all those other movies so uh-huh. uh yeah kudos to to goodman for and how much of this do you think was him just coming in and saying can i just have fun with this role can you let me try some things or or is it what i was thinking that it's just james one pushing him and telling him look we know what you're known for just step away from that. And we're gonna we're gonna give you two sets of glasses. <laughs> one that makes your eyes look really weird and big, and the other ones are just like your well, normal he works on, like, glasses. Car parts and shit, so he needs to have the extra magnified ones when necessary. Yep. Uh and then I'm sure he always wears the same shirt. Uh, yeah. It's always greasy and uh and he has, I mean, we'll talk about it when we get there, but uh, he has my favorite scene in the movie. So he he for me mvp john goodman walks away with that sentence if it was made in the past 5 years absolutely a trump flag hanging up there right <laughs> yes <laughs> wearing a maga hat yes yeah more subtle you're right 
he, he just as he hands Kevin Bacon his guns, he's like, "Make America great again." So they find out Joe's dead. They go to the, this bar and they're discussing it. And these are some smart gangsters because they put this shit together in like thirty seconds. They're like, "He got killed at the apartment last night." Oh yeah, he was just in that courtroom with this guy, and they take the paper out, and they're like, "Oh, it could be this guy." And then <laughs> the one dude's sister was like, uh, "I saw this guy in a suit there," and so they just show him the picture, and she's like, "Yep, that's him." This is what I live for, dude. The in modern films, <laughs> this would this whole sequence of them figuring out who it was, at least twenty to thirty minutes. This movie, thirty seconds. I know you have to suspend your disbelief that these hooligans could figure it out that quick, but. Come on, man. It's a movie. G- give me what I want, and that is rushing the story along. It's the combination of them being really good at figuring out who killed who and Kevin Bacon being really bad at killing people and getting away with it. That's why it works. You know, I don't even think that Kevin Bacon, uh, he probably just put his bloody clothes in the hamper for <laughs> for laundry day. He like just he, the knife he used, he wiped it off with a dirty rag and threw it out the window. Like he's he's not cut out for this life, man. I've been I've been watching the Sopranos. I'm about through the third season and you know, he would last one episode on that. He's not made for this life. But unfortunately, he doesn't have too much of a choice cuz they figured out who he is. Uh they figured out where he works. They stalk him when he gets off work, which leads to this awesome chase sequence through downtown uh Columbia, South Carolina. You know, um I looked it up James Wan was born in Malaysia. So I want to read like the really negative review from, I don't know, the Columbia Gazette in South Carolina where the reviewers like, what would this guy know about Columbia, South Carolina? (laughs) How dare he make us look this bad? But they chase him. uh, They get to the parking garage. And this is awesome. Did you notice that there was this long one panning shot sequence here in the parking garage? Yes. Okay, my I, man. I, I could feel James Wan masturbating over the soundtrack. <laughs> and, and, and good good on him. It's it's pretty impressive. I, my note says uh, James Wan's camera just glides through all the violence. And that's a good thing. It's pretty, uh, it's memorably shot. And, it's uh, fucking awesome. You're downplaying. I'll, I'll color it up a little bit. It's fucking <laughs> tremendous. It goes memorably to like. Memorably shot is underplaying it. <laughs> You're 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 much sweeter than me. I have to be really hyperbolic with everything. So <laughs> no, it's yeah. definitely. It, I, I think it's a centerpiece as far as like action sequences. I mean, it's not oh, yeah. the it's most the, brutal. It's the peak of the movie. It's not the most violent or brutal, but like artistically and from like the set piece sequence, this is like mm-hmm. the peak of the movie. Yeah, it's no, it's it is really good, and it shows you the evolution too of because uh, here's the thing with the Kevin Bacon character, it walks that fine line where. Like I was saying, he's not an action star. So you have to show him as this every man that is just running from these guys. And so in a way, you can say if we're being realistic, he wouldn't make it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's like 10 of them. And, and he he keeps making bad decisions. But they make him, they manage to make him resourceful enough that he actually manages to kill a second one in this in this sequence. You know, he he has a couple of like smart ideas, like when he sets the alarms off in all the cars and then uh you know, he the way that he hides, and it's not like he's a good fighter, but he, I guess, he has adrenaline <laughs> coursing through his veins, so that makes in him, his soul it, not unlike Cody Rhodes. <laughs> yes, put Kevin Bacon in the next WrestleMania. Just, uh, oh, please, <laughs> <laughs> if uh, Knoxville can do it, Bacon can do it. You're yeah, right. I, I think that uh, it, it's within the universe of the movie is believable. You know what I mean? Like, if you make him too incompetent, then. 
then the movie's not not fun. And if you make him too competent, then the movie ju- is just too much. You know, yeah. then it's just this yep. this there's just a generic action movie. So you have to make him walk this line where he he really seems out of his depth, but he can do enough to survive. He's not just getting by on luck. And um, this whole sequence in the parking lot is about that. Jamie, get your willy ass in there so I'm there. Ain't gonna make a fool out of me, motherfucker. So one of the guys catches him on the top floor and they get into a bit of a tussle. And they end up inside this car. Uh, there's some gunfire. And Bacon's able to put the car into neutral so it rolls back and it's about to fly off this garage. And he ties this guy's neck up in the seatbelt so the guy can't get loose at the time. Car goes over the edge. Second guy's dead. Bacon is like, all right, at this pace, the movie's going to be seven hours. <laughs> Hell no. That's, need- <laughs> that's why this is the shit because we're about to basically hit the gas and the movie just goes until the end. Someone puts a brick down on the gas pedal and then it just crashes and then the movie's over. This is so like a non thing in the movie, but it, I just became obsessed with it. There is a woman that works in Kevin Bacon's office that checks in on him a couple of times during the movie. Like mm-hmm. it never goes anywhere, but did you get the feeling that there was a subplot that didn't make it into a final cut where he was having an affair with her? Yes, because specifically the scene following this where Bodie, that's uh Eddie Gaithy, Gaigi, maybe Gaichi. I don't know. I apologize. I don't know how to pronounce your last name. The vampire. Uh, Yes, when he brings him the briefcase, she and you know causes a scene. She looks at him like, "How could you?" Or like, "What did you get yourself into?" That type. <laughs> yeah, of thing. she gives him the look that Kelly Preston gives him later. <laughs> you know, that's like a little too intimate for a coworker, and she and she gets close ups. That's why I was like, "Am I supposed to know who this person is? Is this gonna come back later?" But then we never really see it, so that made me feel like there was some history there. But the movie doesn't support it. Like the, the movie we ended up getting doesn't support it. Like he talks to two people in the in his office. You know, the guy that's kind of like a young guy that he's sort of mentoring, and then this woman, and. Uh, the guy actually comes back at the end because this is the guy that helps him track the telephone number. But the the woman doesn't, and I don't know. I gave me release the the uncut version of that sentence. I want to see what else was Kevin Bacon up to. How else was he dealing with his grief? The uh, Apatow cut that's four hours long has uh, all of it you can handle in there. Just thirty minutes of Kevin Bacon cheating on his wife. There's a little bit of plot development with the other son. We mentioned the survivor's remorse and Kevin Bacon freaks out at him because he finds him at the gas station where his brother was killed and tells him, you know, get in the goddamn car, you know, kind of this we'll figure it out type of thing. But there's really not too much time to lament or, uh, you know, discuss, grieve. As I mentioned, there's a personal delivery of his uh, suitcase, which they recovered, the, the gang that is at the scene of the crime and found the picture of his family put a phone number on the back of it, you know, with the intimidating red lines through each of the family members' faces. And uh, he calls Garrett Headland, And Garrett Headland's like, you know, you don't know who you're fucking with. You've, you've just signed a death sentence. So he says the name of the movie, which is something I always mark out for. <laughs> you pointed out at the, at the screen. There it is. He said cha- it. <laughs> he said it's the chainsaw, the verbal chainsaw. <laughs> so uh, he didn't just find a picture of uh, Kim Bacon's family. Kim Bacon's so bad at this that he dropped his entire wallet out oh, there with you're his right. <laughs> yeah. Again, he's not cut out for this life. He uh, rushes home to protect the family. He calls Aisha Taylor, who you know she she doesn't really have much in this. She kind of is just given the the generic 
police lines of like, you don't know what you're doing. Leave this to the law, that type of shit. But she's a very calming presence and a very unique presence to the movie. Um, yeah. So God bless. Well, she. It's tricky because she is not entirely sympathetic to him. It's, it's like she's had it with white privilege. There's a moment where she tells him, what do you think that you could just kill uh, Hoodlum and get away with it because you live all the way over here? It's like, God damn, the man lost his son just like two weeks ago. She just has no time for it. She seems she's so tired of uh, uh, just white people making dumb moves. My sister was in and out of sleep on the couch and like she kept waking up thinking I was watching Archer because, you know, she has the voice of Lana on there. <laughs> yes. It's like, nope, still watching the movie. Uh, <laughs> she's not making any jokes here either. No, no, she's not. Sirius is a heart attack, but she comes over and assigns a car to stay in front of the house to protect the family since they know they're marked. That don't go too well. Uh, these poor cops, man, both get their throats slit and there's a home invasion. There's a shootout. There's practical effects. So, you know, I was fucking going nuts for this, like squids and, and shit blowing up. Yeah, man. And then we get like a new Jack Vic Grimes type fall off the balcony with Kevin Bacon and one of the henchmen. And then. Uh, it obviously hurts Kevin Bacon because, again, he's not cut out for this. He is not uh, Ron Swanson on The Last of Us. He is not, you know, John Rambo. <laughs> he d- th- This life did not choose him for a reason. So, unfortunately, <laughs> his family gets rounded up and then they just shoot both of them. That was the main part that nailed home that I had never seen this because I was like, well, what happens here? And he just kills the whole family. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. Shoots the kid, shoots Kelly Preston, shoots Kevin Bacon. You're like, okay, are the credits gonna start rolling now? And ba- yeah, it's like boom, boom, and then Bacon's running to make the save and get shot. And then, of course, the hubris of man, Garrett Headland's like, he's probably dead. Just leave him. <laughs> and so, uh, terrible, terrible risk assessment on his part. <laughs> if he makes it to the end of the movie, he's not gonna have a job at the end. That should have been the title card before the end credits. Like um, the goods <laughs> as that one of DJ request is doing like one to five years for assault. Like there should have been Nick Hume is currently doing 15 years for defrauding the public with his risk assessment <laughs> based on this case. But he doesn't die, Alex. That was, uh, were, were you okay? So when he, he got shot and the camera starts kind of gives you this overhead shot and starts circling him. Did you, I did, remember did you how much time <laughs> was left. Did you think that maybe that was it? Yeah, it was about a little over halfway over, but I I remembered bald bacon from the end of it. And so I knew like he would be all right. I thought, though, his family was all dead and he wakes up and we learn that his son uh, is still alive, but he's like in a coma. And then we get easily bacon's Oscar scene, right? Hit with the monologue when he's talking to the kid. The Oscar clip when he goes in and holds his son's hand and starts crying yeah. and talking about, yeah. I think that, well, it's that, but then with the, the best picture clip is him crying in the shower. You know, I would just go full spoiler because, you know, sometimes the Oscar clips will spoil something in the movie. I would do uh, best adapted screenplay is the, the crying in the shower uh, scene. And then best picture is him pulling out the revolver and looking at Garrett Hedlund and saying, ready? Yeah, asking him <laughs> if he's ready. And then, you know, Garrett Hedlund, because Garrett Hedlund has the two single tiers that run. He has one on each side go down. So that's your best picture clip right there. But no, there this is this is Kevin Bacon's best actor clip uh, as he holds his son's hand and explains, you know. You were uh, right. I didn't really like you as much as I did your brother. Yeah, which is such like a, a honest thing for a parent to say because he said it first and then, you know, 
Uh, I loved your mom, but you know, he goes into how special he was and you know, the tears are flown and the tears are real. And now he knows it's go time. Cause he pretty much just, uh, like so many wrestlers of the the eighties and nineties just takes a handful of painkillers and he's like, all right, time to go out there and rock the, <laughs> rock the crowd and bandages himself up. He goes to the bar where this gang hangs out. And we learn that he speaks Spanish and yep. he tells the bartender he's going to cut his head off and beats up the he bartender. Kevin Tocino. <laughs> and asks uh, and he's trying it's to like, force don't this tag Garrett Headland, gringo Headland. <laughs> <laughs> he took all his money too right he's empty he emptied his bank account and the teller didn't seem uh, shocked by the fact that he was bleeding profusely oh yeah <laughs> and it seems bruised. like it seems like he the family was nearing bankruptcy because if we're to believe he used all the money he took out, there was only like five grand left in that savings account. So the Hume family was doomed whether they knew it or not. <laughs> That's why he was so eager to, he was okay with his kid going to Canada. Like, yeah, sure. Get yourself a scholarship. He was like, he, you know, he wiped his brow. He's like, oh, thank God, free healthcare. <laughs> and the savings too, huh? Everything. All of it. Pulling up kids' college fund, huh? <laughs> Billy. I kept forgetting Garrett Headland's name. He's like, what, where's Billy? That type of thing. And he tells him, and then he's like, well, I'm going to need guns too. So then we get the Clash of the Titans here. And like the reason I would use that Headland scene for the best picture is so that there would still be the like the surprise of this scene for movie, moviegoers. Like, holy shit, Kevin Bacon and John Goodman have it out here. And he goes to talk to Bones and buy some guns from him and uh, they have this back and forth. He starts with, you know, Goodman sees him and starts with, I don't know you. It's like, well, I'm here to buy some <laughs> guns. And he shows him the cash he's got, opens his safe. And, you know, they do this transaction. He says he's a preferred customer. He fills this giant duffel bag full of ammunition and guns. It would be funny if it wasn't sad because it's <laughs> an accurate portrayal of how things happen in this country. And then Bacon as he walks, then says, uh, then Bacon says, yes, the election was stolen. And Goodman was like, oh, yeah, here, have some grenades. He said, here's my pronouns. And then cocks the gun. <laughs> and then John Goodman just gives him like the knowing nod. As he goes to walk, that doesn't actually happen. We're, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're meshing things too seamlessly here. But as Kevin Bacon, as Nick goes to walk away, we do hear a gun cocking because John Goodman's standing behind him and asks, are you the one after my son, Billy? And Bacon has a very, very, very small moment of hesitation, you know, in his mind. He's like, you're his dad? And he realizes, you know, he's someone's son, that type of thing. And, but then John Goodman, of course, is just like, if you're going to kill him, do it. I've been too patient with him. Just don't have the fucking nerve to ask me where he is. It's a very interesting scene and tremendously acted. I, you know, we've been yep. we've been uh, hyping up Bacon here, but Goodman obviously steals the scenery and the scene here. Yeah, this is the best scene of the movie. This is where I, I, that's why I told you like he he walks away with the movie for me because he it's not just that he's having so much fun with the role, but also that they give him that moment where he goes against everything you would expect. <laughs> Did you think that he was uh, Billy's father, or was this a surprise for you the way it was for Bacon? Yeah, it was a surprise for me as well because yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, I just didn't know if maybe I had missed like something that indicated because they have one scene together. Before, That's what I know, thought that I might have missed something, but yeah, it just appears as though he's just kind of the guy that gives him odd jobs to do. Once he reveals that, you're like, all right, we're down for we're about to have a showdown between these two. But instead, they pivot and Goodman, and, and it never feels out of character. 
that he just tells him, yeah, he, he's a fuck up. I mean, it's it's bound to happen. So go and do your business. He puts it in terms where he's just saying this is just the way it has to be. Somebody kills yeah. someone and now somebody's going to kill somebody else in return. And if that someone has to be my son, well, it's that's his own fault. I loved it. It was it was such a unique character moment there and uh, really it justified the existence of the character because up till then I was, you know, I thought that he was cool, but I'm like, all right, they just, they stunt cast John Goodman. And so they gave him a lot of quirks and a lot of stuff to do, but did we really need that? And then with this scene, it justifies, it's like, oh yeah, you definitely needed John Goodman to to play this part, it's it's amazing. Uh, early Embry contender. So it's on. He's stocking up his cachet weaponry and shaves his head for some reason. He, um, you know, because <laughs> it was at the poster. It was the you know the Robin Tunney moment he has here, where he puts on "Free" by the Martinis in the background and just decides <laughs> that it's time to <laughs> shave his head. I so much fucking love and appreciate, and you know I'm. You're not going to find me talking mad shit about Empire Records, but uh, Deb, Robin Tunney, is, to my knowledge in that film, not like a barber or stylist, and she does a perfect job of shaving her head. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, all right, that's, that's kind of like a movie. Kevin Bacon here is just a madman possessed and does a really poor job of shaving his head, and it stays that way the rest of the movie. It's fantastic. Yep. He's just like, ah, fuck it. And <laughs> he goes up to Aisha Tyler. It was like, I just my head got really hot. <laughs> she, <laughs> uh, she said, "What does Deb say in that?" Aisha Taylor asked Nick's like, "Didn't you have hair on your head when you went in the bathroom?" <laughs> uh huh. Some of it's still in the sink if you want it. There's no way that we don't make this joke. But when he's done, he just looks at the massive scar across his head and goes, "I guess I have. I still have some healing to do." God. God damn you. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of that. That's outstanding work, Julio. Uh, but he it's time to do the Lord's work. He is the the shepherd and he's there for the harvest or whatever other cliche you can think of from any action movie. They do quote the crow at one point. Fear is for the enemy and bullets or something like that. Yeah, who does that? Is that Goodman? Goodman says that. I'm trying to remember exactly what the line is. Fear is for the enemy, fear and bullets. There you go. Bacon heads out to the the compound that this gang hangs at. John Goodman, Bones, goes to warn Billy. He's like, hey, this guy's after you because you're such a fuck up. I'm tired of cleaning up after you. And then he just shoots his dad in the head. That like legitimately shocked me. I was like, holy shit. Goodman takes a like a bullet to the brain and takes a bump. And then he's just done. <laughs> it's like the the really artistic one, too, where the one eyeglass blows out. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that maybe... It was someone else. That it wasn't Billy, because I didn't think that it was Billy. I thought that Kevin Bacon had shot him. Yes, because yeah, they're like they're really close, and then <laughs> his head, Goodman's head, explodes, and you're like, "Holy shit!" I had to Bacon rewind it because I was like, "What? What happened?" That's a rite of passage. That's when Garrett Hedlund really becomes a man. He says, "Thanks, Dad. I'm using your car or something really shitty." I was like, "Oh man, I hope he dies now." <laughs> Bacon comes into their compound he shoots a guy's or first of all he breaks into this dude that's just hanging out with this girl and pistol whips him until he gives up billy's location and then he shoots him in the head because he makes the guy tell billy he's like he's not dead and he says you're sentenced and that's when billy knows like shit's on this movie's so much cooler than i'm making it sound right now Uh, (laughs) 
But when he shows up to the the hideout, he shoots this dude's leg off with a shotgun, and then he shoots him in the chest. And if you're gonna do this movie, you need someone like James Wan that has a, like an insatiable thirst for gore and like the hyper violent. Saw has come to be labeled torture porn, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is not that; it's just really violent, hyperized life. Or what was the phrase you used earlier about just like this is hyper reality. Hyper reality, thank you. And that's what this is. When you get shot, yeah, there's going to be a hole and it's going to bleed. But in a movie like this that's so outlandish, why not just have your entire chest cavity <laughs> blow out? Why not when you get shot in the leg with a gun, your whole fucking leg blows off? Like, why not? What, what, well, especially what because that's, that's what we want. We've, we are like Kevin Bacon. We want retribution. We, we like Kelly Preston. We, we want somebody to avenge her. So it, it makes sense. It's, you're giving the audience what they want, which is, not just killing these guys, but killing them with extreme prejudice. It's also, like I said at the beginning of the episode, right? It's part of the the contract, I think, when you start, you, know, you sit down to watch a vengeance movie, a, a revenge thriller. You know that you're going to put up with the suffering in the first hour so that you can be uh, rewarded with the, with the actual vengeance part in, in the last 30 minutes. That's just how it's supposed to work. And uh, and I think James Wan understands that, and that's why he doesn't shy away from being extremely graphic <laughs> in this climatic uh, sequence. He was certainly not killing them softly. So what? <laughs> so this motherfucker. He runs through a few of the uh, the henchmen, and then it finally results in him. It's like a chapel or like a cathedral in their hideout ends up with him and Garrett Hedlund in a shootout at the last second. You know, it's the bad guy you forget about. It's, you know, the proverbial jump scare in a horror movie as uh, Bodie jumps out. Our, our boy Eddie's back in the frame, shoots Kevin Bacon through the throat. Kevin Bacon's able to spin around, boom, put one right through his forehead. And then him and Garrett Hedlund are just like shooting body parts off one another. Like, I think uh, Bacon eats one in like the arm and the leg and maybe the, the, the midsection, but Hedlund just gets riddled with bullets and there's one particular that blows like half his hand off. It's metal as fuck. And he screams, right? Like this, there's like a kind of a, not a close-up, but it's a, it's a closer shot where he looks at his, his hand blows up and he goes, ah! I mean, as would be anyone's natural reaction to the situation, but... So Bacon's done, you know, he's holding his neck wound shut and he sits down on one of the pews there. And then in a really awesome moment, Headland thinks he has him dead to rights, but he's so fucked up and, you know, just woozy. And he's uh, Matthew Lillard in Scream, feel a little woozy. <laughs> and he tries to shoot him twice, but he just misses him wildly by like a football field margin. And so his gun, you know, is out of bullets and he sits down next to him. And this is the moment I remembered from booth watching it up in the projection booth um which of course kind of spoils the movie but i remember thinking well that's that seemed like a really powerful scene and it is billy sits down next to nick and he's like look at you i turned you into one of us and he thinks he has like this gotcha moment and then nick kevin bacon just pulls out you know a gun that would make revolver ocelot come in his pants and it's the one that (laughs) John Goodman told him would like, you know, blow someone up type thing. And he places like when you absolutely positively have to kill every motherfucker in the room. Man, you're on you're on fire with the references tonight. Well done. Yeah. And he just pulls out the gun, sets it on his thigh 
cocks it, looks at uh, Garrett Hedlund and says, he asks, ready? Not even, are you ready? Just ready. And then we get the Garrett Hedlund tears. And then in a brilliant maneuver by the filmmaker in a movie up until this point where everything has been shown in intense, gruesome detail, the main death we want to see, it's not taken away from us. We just know in that moment, he he says, checkmate, you know, I win. And we know he won. And then he gets, he steals one of their cars. I, I laughed when it shows him pulling into his house and he's driving one of their fucking Diablo stallions or whatever the hell they have. <laughs> and then he goes into his home, fires up the home videos. Aisha Taylor shows up and uh, walks in and he looks like shit, man. He, he's on death's door. He's pale and he, you know, he's still holding his neck wound. The man needs medical attention. Uh, I think it, it could be perceived by the viewer that he doesn't make it much longer than the end credits. But we do get the good news that his son is moving and that it looks like he's going to pull through and be fine again. So, so, so is that how you is that how you read the the ending? You think that he dies, but he dies happy because his son survived? This is a part where I really wish you had seen Dancer in the Dark. So I could <laughs> make a really good analogy. But yeah and this is where the movie needs to end here's the good news and then you know the guy the hero won because what what is there to gain by going any further than this the son comes out and his dad's dead or the son comes out and his dad's doing life in prison like what what is there to gain this is how no, you but I, how I'm you make an action movie there's an argument you who love to uh argue that some endings are more ambiguous than they really are you know like so you think that there's no ambiguity here he's definitely going to die Oh no, I don't know about that. I'm sorry. I, I okay. thought we were we were arguing the ambiguity of the sun. I was like, no, she pretty much said he's going to be fine. Um, I know that the DVD or there's like an extended version of this. That, you know, it's just one of those that's five minutes long or whatever. Either the alternate ending or the extended version, he does die. But in this one, it's like what what's to gain from us seeing it? I mean, there is the ambiguity there. Cut to 15 years later, it's uh, Asia Tyler is making him breakfast. He's in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh man and then like they they have a daughter and they name it uh what's the kelly (laughs) not kelly what's her helen that's her name in the movie that'd be even more meta if they they're like here's kelly preston hume (laughs) but this is why movies can be perfect in a situation like this it's like all right here's the first act here's the second act here's the third act with the conclusion and now get the fuck out of the theater. That's what movies are supposed to be, man. <laughs> and it, it all happens under two hours. Yes. An hour 45. Beautiful. Look at the they, runtime on Aquaman. Just to see uh, <laughs> how far James Wan has fallen. Death Sentence is a really weird movie to end the summer with. You would think that would be... You would give that like the Logan spot of like kicking off the summer. Because by that point, who's fucking no. going to the movies anymore? Death Dude, okay. but at the beginning of the of the summer? No, 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 no. Because I okay, maybe I'm wrong. What this is James Wan when he was still, you know, a pup. Yeah. And and Kevin Bacon wasn't, you know, you didn't expect him to be, you know, he was Kevin Bacon, but he was not a, a you know, somebody that was gonna bring people to the movies just on the string of his name. And then you don't okay. you know, John Goodman has only two scenes. what do you think the best shot was? A January release? No, that's that's if they didn't have any faith in it. <laughs> no, I actually think August makes perfect sense because you're winding down. I, I always feel like the end of August is where they like throw stuff that they don't know what to do with. They're like, this is good. but Because, you know, if you put it in January, then people automatically assume that it's bad. But if you put it at the end of the summer, people are like, huh, let's see. 
Yeah, and school's back in by the end of the month in most places. And so So kids are not going to go watch this. (laughs) The thought could also be that you're able to catch like the daytime traffic of adults trying to kill time. They just had to compete with the box office juggernaut that was Rob Zombie's Halloween. That movie made $80 million. What's your excuse, James Wan? (laughs) He didn't have Tyler Mayne. Or Clint Howard. Or (laughs) Udo Kier, who was cut out of the movie. (laughs) All right. All right, Julio. Well, I think we've given Death Sentence about as good as the contrarian's treatment as it's going to get. So I am very excited about Real Talk in the second half of this podcast uh, because I think you can tell I was a big fan of this, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. So are you ready to move along? Let's go to real talk. Let me shave my head and then we'll pick this back up. I I could never picture you bald, Julio. You've got a beautiful head of hair on you. <laughs> now, Mr. Hume, I think it's time you told me. Exactly who did what to whom? You make war on the wrong dog? Hmm? That what you did? Thought you could just go kill some little asshole because you live all the way out here? saying what is she saying nick i've done nothing wrong well then why don't you tell me how you make billy darley this pissed off at you 